This is really about being free to create what you want your life to look like. We each are our own hero. And how do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? Can you meet that judgment that ultimately will surface with neutrality? This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. Aloha, everybody. I'm so excited to share this incredible conversation with Grant Williams. We do a half hour video interview with him, and then we take it over to Twitter space for an entire juicy hour where Grant goes into an incredible array of wisdom. You're going to love the episode. Just a friendly reminder, though, to sign up for my free ebook, Go to TraderDiscipline.com. The name of my book is called Discipline and Finding Your Edge. I hope you sign up for it. And please subscribe also to our YouTube channel so you can be alerted when we have new episodes. Enjoy this episode now with Grant Williams. Aloha, everybody, and welcome back to the Wall Street Coach Podcast. Boy, do I have a magical guest today, the one and only Grant Williams. He is the author and publisher of Things That Make You Go, Hmm, and host of the Grant Williams Podcast. He's also the uh, one of the co-founders of Real Vision Group, and Grant has spent over 35 years in finance in a variety of global financial centers, building the kind of network that really only some can even dream about. Currently, he is the senior advisor to Matterhorn Asset Management AG in Switzerland and a portfolio and strategy advisor to Volpe's Investment Management in Singapore. Grant's twin Real Vision interview series in conversations with and on the road, raise the bar for financial content, engaging, educating viewers in equal measure and helping them really learn the secrets behind extraordinary investors and their success. And his new series uh, of video conversations about time continues that legacy. Grant, thank you for coming to my podcast. It is my great pleasure. I'm, I'm honored to be asked. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm just uh, so excited, and we're doing a two-part uh, magical concoction today, folks. We're going to speak to Grant on this video platform for about 25, 30 minutes, and then we're going to take it over to Twitter space to have people be able to be interact with their questions. But I have my questions first, which have to come first. So because of this incredible career of 35 years that you've had because you have lived and seen multiple bear markets, not just in the US, but globally. I think my first question to you is, what is it that traders and investors have a tendency to forget when they're in the throes of one? Uh, how damaging they can be. You know, I think, I think, uh, we've we've had this period where if you, if you take 2008 out of the equation, we haven't really had any kind of real bear market for 20 years. And that that's a career for many people. Um, and so this kind of buy the dip mentality that has, has been inculcated by central bank policy and markets just going higher has led people away from a real understanding of, of how tricky and how damaging bear markets can be. And so um, you know, I think I think that the first duty we all have is is not to not to suffer big losses. You know that that's that's the thing that you have to avoid. And there haven't really been that many big losses in in markets overall for quite some time now. And and if you'd been patient and bought the dip, then you know pretty soon you'd be you'd be back to square. And so that's kind of that's how people have been taught to think about markets and how to trade them. 
Um, and you know, that old saying this time is different. People laugh at it. Um, and of course this time isn't different if you take a wide enough look at history, but in the last 20 years, um, this time is different. And so, uh, you know, people can, people can be warned about the dangers of these things. Um, but as, as I've said to my kids, you know, many, many times that there are, there are things that you can be taught, but there are things you have to learn. And unfortunately, the pain of bear markets is really something most people uh, have to learn. And if, and if people could be taught that and sidestep them, it would be just a wonderful gift for whoever can come up with a way of, of kind of hammering that into people's heads that, look, you know, the markets don't always treat you kindly. And, and every bear market is not a dip buying opportunity. And, and some of them can eviscerate your wealth and, and set you back years on your on your kind of path to accumulating the, the enough assets to, to retire happily. Yeah. So even those that perhaps are even sophisticated investors or traders who maybe have been here for 20 years or more, uh, what what do you think they need to keep as their guiding light or their North Star as they do surf through this? Well, I, th I think you know, for me, if, if anyone does an exercise where they where they take a real position on and a paper position on, um, and those two things do the same thing, take the same path, it's amazing how different your thought process is around the paper position. You can be very clear and say, "Oh yeah, no, I'll cut this and I'll I'll hedge this out and I'll you know I'll I'll, I'll take it off my watch list and I'll move away." And we all have that ability in in a theoretical way to to handle drawdowns, to handle um, positions going against us. But once you have a real position on and it's costing you money, um, we all, I think, struggle to, to battle those demons of, of taking the first cut and losing money. And, and really, I think for traders, it's not so much losing the money, it's, it's, it's kind of admitting to yourself that you were wrong about something. That's a, that's a thing that we all struggle with because you you sit there and you you analyze a stock or a currency or a bond or whatever it may be and you you come to a conclusion about what it's going to do in the future which of course is completely unknowable you're you're making your best guess and it's some are more educated than others so to have it go against you kind of obviates all the work you did it kind of challenges your your knowledge levels it challenges your skill levels and so we kind of you take that first loss and you think well I'll I'll wait till I get back to even then I'll cut it and then it doesn't get back to even. It goes down more, and you think, well, you know, I can't, I can't sell it now. And your 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 mindset changes completely as from from what you would do if you had a paper loss. You cut it and you'd move on, and you'd you'd um you'd you'd look for the next trade. And so, I think um, the times we've had have encouraged that 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 mindset of oh you know just wait till it gets back to even and and invariably it has you know there have been a few obviously um, exceptions and invariably you've had that chance and of course when it gets back to even most people don't cut it they wait for it to go up and then you know it, the whole cycle starts in reverse but but you know the work you do in, in helping people think about these things and, and understand the way that our brains work when when danger is introduced into the equation, and in this case, obviously, we were talking about not physical danger, but the danger of losing money, we do act differently. The neural pathways get channeled in different directions, and and trying to conquer that is is arguably the biggest challenge that any of us face when we're trying to invest in in moving markets. Are there certain mindset techniques that you yourself lean into when going through it? Well, yeah, I, I mean, 
to be honest, as I said, it comes back to that comment about things you can be taught and things that you can only learn. Yes. And I've, I've, I've paid my dues. I've, I've, I've done this over and over again to myself. And I've, I've, I think eventually you stop touching the hot stove to see if it's hot. You know, you realize that it's okay to be to be wrong. It's okay to lose money on nine trades if you make it back on a 10th trade. Yeah. Um, and so it, it really is, it, it's, it's an experience thing for me. I mean, yeah. the, the, there may be exercises you can do to, um, to give yourself a better chance of, of overriding those, those messages that get sent to your brain. But for me, it's been experience. It's been, it's been taking my losses and um, you know, I, I've, I've, I've talked about this often, but my first year of, of having my own trading book saw the night, the 87 crash happen. Mm -hmm. And so that was incredibly painful at the time. I mean, I was just standing around in a daze wondering what the hell had happened. I didn't have any clue what was going on. But having had that happen to me, I now know viscerally that that, that can happen. Markets can go down 25% a day. And, and people will say to you, well, not anymore because of circuit breakers. Okay, that's fine. But they can go down 10% a day. They can go down 30% in a month. We've seen that. And so having that experience and that understanding, and look, 2020, again, is, is the best of times and the worst of times for traders because it, it, on the one hand, it's shown you what can happen when markets get really dislocated. But on the other hand, it's reinforced this idea that someone's there to bail you out, the government this time and the central banks, um, which is which is problematic. You know, I think that's that's a very dangerous lesson to learn. So, um, yeah, I, I I wish there were there were techniques to avoid it, but 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 repetition and and recognizing situations, recognizing how you are reacting to certain things happening to you, and realizing you know I did this before. And I made a mistake that I said I'd never, never make. And, and you know, I, I'm a great believer that if you don't make the same mistake twice, then every mistake is perfectly acceptable. Um, trading, I think, it takes more than once for those for those lessons to be learned. And and again, that's okay yep. as long as you avoid that that catastrophic loss. And and sadly, you know, looking at the crypto world now, and looking at some of the message boards and some of the horrendous stories of people who've who've learned this the hard way and have lost everything. You know, which is just heartbreaking to read, um, but it's the nature of markets. You know, bear markets um, and, and volatile markets do the everything they can to take the most amount of money off everybody, yeah. um, and they're always successful. So the aim is to try and not be one of those people, and, and that genuinely involves recognizing that the markets change, recognizing we're not in a buy the dip market anymore, and then having the courage, and it really is courage, to to lose money. And say, okay, I'm down five percent. I'm down ten percent. Whatever it may be, I cannot allow myself to be down twenty five percent, thirty percent, forty percent. Yeah. So here's an impossible question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Everybody wants to know how long it's going to last for. How long do you think it's going to last for? Look, it is an impossible question, and um, and anybody that gives you an answer to that question is is lying to you. Um, you know, none of us know. Now it, it'll 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 go on until everybody's pain threshold has been reached it'll go on until i think this time around people don't want to hear the words crypto anymore don't want to hear the word stocks anymore it'll yeah. it'll it, and there will be some bear market rallies in that period but i think um if you if you invest based on value criteria for example if you're a value investor something which has been out of vogue for some time now then you can buy things when they seem valuable to you and that's not to say they won't go down further 
But if you can buy assets at prices, which mean that even if you're wrong in the short term, over the longer term, the value that you are buying, if you're buying, if you're buying uh, dollar bills for 50 cents, then at some point they're going to be worth a dollar again. And I think that that gives people comfort um, if you can buy real tangible value. You know, we've seen an era where everything's been about intangibles. It's been about eyeballs and networking and Metcalfe's law and all these, all these wonderful things which aren't concrete. But if you can buy um, uh, a company for less than book value, you know that there is value there that in the worst case can be realized by selling the company off, for example. Um, now, there's, there's an exception to that in something like the biotech space where if you look around in the US and the UK, uh, you will find dozens of companies trading, trading at less than the cash they have in the bank. Mm-hmm. Which for many people would go well. I mean, you just buy the buy the company and you and you sell the company, you take the cash out of the bank. And in some cases that might work, but these companies burn through an inordinate amount of cash, mm-hmm. uh, and they could burn through the cash quicker than you could liquidate the company. So there are always exceptions to the rule. But um, you know, I, I think when you when you get to these markets where things are on sale and you're looking for a flaw, then the flaws that we've seen in recent years have been kind of you know well. We, we held the last low and I'm sure the Fed will come in here and they won't let the market fall anymore. And, and, and the lows have been intangible. Whereas this time around, I think people are going to want to own tangible lows, companies that are trading cheaply relative to their assets, companies that produce real things that can be sold off and aren't reliant upon you know, the internet. Um, and I think we're going back to that era. So when you see, when you see companies trading for values that, a price sorry that you've got to find a reason not to buy them then i think we're getting near the bottom Hmm. do you think that the way american investors and or traders view markets is very different than the way those in other countries do i think it has been because the u.s uh, equity market, for example, has had this tremendous tailwind in recent years. You know, there's been so much capital flowing to U.S. equities, and because of the whether it be the fangs or whatever else it may be, if you look at the performance of U.S. equities over Europe, over emerging markets, um, you will see that America has outperformed. So naturally, yeah. that yeah. is going to color the attitude of traders in America to to believe in the exceptionalism of their markets, and, and they've been absolutely right for a decade. Yeah. Um, but of course, when things turn. They've yeah. got further to fall than the other. So again, it's 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 understanding that this time may be different. It's understanding that you can't rely on that buy the dip idea that's worked so well, um, and and understanding that again, relatively speaking, capital flows um, in free market economies can go all around the world to the place that they find the best home for. That has been America. Yeah. Um, that may not be America in the next couple of years, and so you have to be open to believing that that's the case. Yeah. Um, you know, the podcast that you host is uh, been listened, downloaded over a million times. You are, right? I had no idea. You are the top 0.1% of podcasts. Uh, that, that puts you specifically in that location, which is unprecedented. Um, because of this, it's because of the content and because of the people that you interview and the conversations you have. And it, 
I, when I say this, you have a way of talking about complex issues in a way that's understandable and not filled with jargon. It's really rare, Grant. What well, do you, you're welcome. It's, it's the truth. What, what do you feel? Is it your curiosity that asks the kind of questions that you do and look for those hidden gems that the majority of people in finance aren't talking about? What, what drives that? Uh, yeah, no, I, th I think ge genuine curiosity is a big part of it. You know, I, I, I when I have these conversations, I, I, there's stuff I want to learn. Um, I'm not there to pontificate. I'm not there to um, try and pretend to be smart. I'm there to learn. And so, you know, I think the questions are born out of a genuine curiosity. And you know, I'm I'm, I'm fortunate enough that that I've I've been in markets, you know, almost four decades now. And so that gives me a grounding in various aspects of of, uh, of of risk assets and it's just enough to be dangerous and just enough to ask dumb questions so I you know I can I can ask the dumb question and um, and hope that the answer doesn't overly confuse me um, and if it does I'm not above asking for clarification on it so I think the whole thing is a learning exercise but particularly the way things are right now I mean yeah. I've spoken to so many peers guys I've known for decades who've, who've been through all kinds of cycles in these markets and and we sit around saying the hell is going on i mean it just doesn't make much sense and and when you get to periods like that ironically we've we've been through a period that that didn't make an awful lot of sense but the the overall economic uh inputs didn't make sense against where asset prices were but then you had this intangible of the central banks this this central bank put you knew that they would they would come in if the markets fell too far, so it kind of didn't have to make sense. The markets didn't have to make sense. Now the central banks have kind of abandoned this, um, or certainly would have us believe they've abandoned this. And so you've got a lot of people are clinging to that idea that, yeah, well they'll blink and they'll come in and they'll pivot and everything will be fine. So I'm going to hang on, and it may be right. Look, it may be right that there is a very strong chance that they will pivot, but. Before they would pivot down 15, 20%. This time, maybe it's down 50 or 60%. And can you stand the 50 or 60% drawdown? I don't know. So once you take away that the, the, the kind of faux certainty that we all had at the, about what the central banks would do, then yeah, none of it does make sense anymore. And so you, you just have to keep asking questions and trying, and trying to figure the whole thing out. So that's, that's really all I'm trying to do. Nothing more grandiose than that. Yeah. Uh where do you go for your information to to read to periodicals podcasts people is it a collective of divergent views just talk a little yeah bit. yeah i mean i i try and seek out as many views as i possibly can um i mean obviously we all we're all drawn towards echo chambers we like to to talk to people that that, that agree with us because it makes us feel better about our own predictions um, and you know, everyone knows there's a danger in that, but for me, you know, I've, I've been fortunate in that I've, I've kind of come across and, and, and made contact with so many different people in different parts of the world with different viewpoints. And so I get sent so much stuff to read and, uh, it, it's fantastic. You know, I read everything that I'm sent and I read everything I can, and I'm not necessarily any the wiser after reading a lot of it, but, it, but you find that you read these pieces and it just, a little piece of something goes in the back of your head. You read a sentence or you read a thought and, and it just intrigues you. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And uh, you, you, sometimes you don't even know it's in there until 
a conversation you have a couple of weeks later and that person will say something that triggers that thing you remembered from two weeks earlier. And, and then you can ask the question, say, hey, look, I read this thing a couple of weeks ago and it got me thinking about you know the, 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 the Japanese government bond market, whatever it may be. And then you know the the, the beauty of um, the beauty of the finance industry is is it, it's it's highly competitive, but there's a very collegiate approach to it, and and I think we're all searching for answers. And so, yeah. in my experience, it, it's it's I mean I I can't remember I, I won't say it's never happened, but I can't remember a time when I've asked someone a question about either something they're doing without getting too specific obviously there are there are proprietary stuff that people can't talk about and had someone say oh i don't want to i don't want to talk to you about that people will share what they've learned and that was that was a big belief when we when we started real vision was that we, we'll go and have these conversations with people and we're just peers talking about the world and we're asking questions and we're trying to figure things out together yeah. um and let people be a fly on the wall for the, for those conversations and, and that's you know i'm trying to carry that on with with the podcast and with with the video conversations I'm having is literally that just sit and talk to someone, yeah. ask them the questions and let people listen in and hopefully some of the questions you ask and some of the answers will stick in their mind and and will trigger them in a conversation or an article they read in the in the, you know, in the future. I feel that word that you used a few minutes ago truly is what sets you apart. There are unfortunately, more than a handful of people in the finance space who do pontificate. And you're the antithesis of that. You truly are curious. You truly have this quality of, I, do, I want to understand that from a perspective different than maybe the one I already have. And Well, I, but, but, I, but I also, Kim, and I, I also genuinely believe that i'm the dumbest person in every conversation that's why i'm there to learn so i you know i i'm i'm there to listen not to talk and so I, you know i'll ask the questions yeah. and then just get out of people's way because i'm i've i mean i've honestly the things i've learned over time from listening to me talk are things like you shouldn't have had that fourth beer i mean that, that's about the only things i've learned from listening to me talk so i, I try not to do that whenever possible uh, I just want to give a shout out to Jawad Mian because that's how I came together. I think Jawad uh, also has this approach uh, that you spoke of a few minutes ago beautifully uh, from this place of contribution, from this place of curiosity and uh, being in relationship to people who perhaps look at the world through a different lens. Is this something that grew over time as you traveled, lived, experienced these different cultures? Do you think you already leaned towards that when you began in finance? Uh, look, well, first of all, I echo that shout out. Joad Mian is one of the most beautiful human beings I've ever met in my life. He is just an absolute treasure. Um, just a just a wonderful, wonderful man. And I love him dearly. Um, but I, I think... Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I really don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if I if I was predisposed to that, but I've I was lucky enough to to be offered the chance to go and work in in Japan when I was in my early twenties, mm -hmm. um, and I jumped at that opportunity to go, thinking you know if I don't like it, I can go home. It's fine, and so I think I think taking that leap to to what was a very foreign country at the time, you know, the the, the there weren't any direct flights to from London to Tokyo when I moved over there. You had to go through Anchorage, Alaska. So it was, it was Japan was kind of very different, 
and culturally to land in japan and and assimilate into japanese culture was both wonderful and hilarious and terrifying it all wrapped into one and i think that that kind of got me curious about other countries and other cultures and, and i had the opportunity to to live and work and I've, I've seized every opportunity i've had so i think when you when you when you do that and you open yourself up to two different cultures and different people it, it, it naturally just makes you more accepting of other opinions and other angles and other thoughts and, and, I, and, I, and i think that's just an incredibly useful thing to to have had and, I, and i'm very fortunate that that's kind of the way i've developed more, more through happenstance than anything else mm. One of my favorite movies is a movie called Happenstance. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it just—it's—it's it's a beautiful film that just shows us that even the most random things can take us down these golden pathways. And um, of the all the interviews you've done, because you've done so many, what is there one or two that stand out that were just like earthquake experiences for you? You know, there's been so many. Um, <clears throat> and and this is this is Sophie's choice for me. It's yeah, I've, I've had sure. I've had so many opportunities to have these wonderful conversations. But there there are two. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm I'm talking way more than I'm used to. Um, there are two that stick out for me really because of the the reaction to them. I mean, they were wonderful conversations. Um, one from 2018 and one that I did recently. Um, and the one from 2018 uh, is with um, a dear friend of mine, Tony Deaton, who. Uh, is a very private man and he was incredibly gracious in, in agreeing to let me sit and talk to him. It's not something he'd ever done before and it's not something he'll ever do again, I don't think. Um, but we sat down and talked and, and Tony is is a remarkable man. He really is with, with, a, with just a wonderful way of looking at the world and, and he's an incredibly gifted communicator. He, he, he's also way too humble and will never admit to any of this and, and finds the whole thing kind of curious rather than anything else. But the response to that conversation, um, wherever I've been in the world, you know, people want to talk to me about it and people want to talk to me about Tony uh, and what they learned from him that day. And, and there are people who watch that interview regularly to remind themselves of the things he said. And, you know, funny enough, just today, someone posted a short clip of it on on Twitter and tagged me in it. And, and I went back there and he said, oh, you know, watch this two minutes uh, with Tony. And I found myself watching it for 25 minutes until I had to do something else. And, I, and I've seen that interview. It's two and a half hours long, which sounds daunting, but I've seen it. I must have seen it 20 times wow. and I still get something out of it. Wow. Uh, so that would be one. And then I, I very recently had a, an opportunity to go um, and spend a day with a gentleman called Sir Stephen Wilkinson in, in Ireland. And again, I, 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 I've ended up with uh, what, when it was finished was a five and a half hour conversation with, with Stephen. Which again sounds—I mean, people will be like thinking, "Oh my God, how can you possibly listen to a five and a half hour conversation?" And, and you know, you'd be amazed over a couple of days if you listen to it on a podcast or, or you sit now and watch the video. But you know, that conversation um, was extraordinarily profound, just in the way Stephen sees the world, the way Stephen sees business. Um, and there are so many lessons in that conversation for entrepreneurs and businessmen and traders and, and anyone that's trying to make their way in the world of, of business and finance today. This was, I mean, just re remarkable. I mean, and it literally, it, it, it was dark outside before I even realized what we, where, where, where we were in the day. I mean, it was just yeah. it was such a captivating conversation. And again, the, the response to that from people has been very similar to that 
which uh, which Tony received, which which I'm delighted with because you know Stephen is just again another remarkable human being, just an exceptional person, and and to be able to let people find him and share in that wisdom is is just a huge gift for me. Yeah, I mean the wisdom when when people have deep wisdom, who wants to stop the conversation? I mean, right? Yeah. You want it to last forever because you're sitting at the feet of a person who's a master and it's those jewels can stay with you forever. So I, I love that you lost track of the time. It tells me you were deep in the in the rabbit hole of what he was bringing forth. So those are going to be two uh, podcasts I'm definitely going to have to watch, but I need to take us over to Twitter spaces now. But ironically, one of the questions we got from Twitter that we'll address in a minute was about Tony Deaton. So uh, I, I can talk about time. Tony. I can talk right. about Tony all day long. I, I, I will happily talk about Tony whenever anybody wants to. He's just he's just a wonderful man and a, and a fantastic friend. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. So we're going to meet everybody over at Twitter spaces now. And uh, thank you so much for coming. Let's do it. Hey, looking forward to it. Okay. Hopefully that works. So I'm so glad everybody's here and here early. Uh, we're going to have a great conversation. I just came uh, off a podcast interview with Grant Williams, and I'm so excited to take him into Twitter spaces so that we can have uh, everybody participate and listen to his words of wisdom uh, together. Uh, Grant, if, if you're living under a rock for some reason and, and need to know who he is, is a author and publisher of things that make you go, hmm. And he's also the host of the Grant Williams podcast. He's also one of the co-founders of Real Vision Group. Grant has spent over 35 years in finance in a variety of global financial centers, building an incredible network that people can only dream about. He is currently the senior advisor to Matterhorn Asset Management, aging in Switzerland, and a portfolio and strategy advisor to Volpe's Investment Management in Singapore. His real twin, uh, his twin real vision interview series in conversations with and on, on the road, raised the bar for financial content, engaging and educating viewers in equal measure, and helping them learn the secrets behind a group of extraordinary investors' success. And his new video series, About Time, continues that legacy. My name is Kim Ann Curtin. I'm the founder of The Wall Street Coach. My team and I work with traders and investors to help them remove the obstacles that hold them back. And on my podcast, I interview inspiring figures from the trading and investing space to help others learn from their success. Grant, thank you so much for doing this Twitter space with me. Kim, I'm flattered to be asked, so thank you for having me. You know, we put some uh, requests out on Twitter to see what questions some of your followers had. And because we just spoke about uh, Tony Deaton in our podcast, I think we're going to start with Tom's question first. He asked, can you give us an update on those non-social media friends like Tony Deaton and even Stephen Tiggle and your sen their sense of the current investing worldview? Well, it's it's um, I, I, let's start with Tony first. I mean, Tony is um, is remarkably consistent. You know, Tony has a set of principles, has a set of values, and and they form the very core of not just his investment thesis and his investment style, but his his personality and his and his humanity. You know, he, he's a he's a deeply principled man, and he takes that. That, that kind of framework into his investing. So 
you know, I, I, I would imagine, and I would never dream of putting words in Tony's mouth, but my, my hunch is that if you spoke to him, and I'm going to see him in a, in a few weeks, um, he, he wouldn't be doing anything different now, you know, mm-hmm. because Tony was not one who got caught up in the madness and the mania. Tony was never buying high-priced stocks on extended valuations. He was never... Um, he was never going to be uh, into into cryptocurrencies. In fact, um, when I asked him about crypto in the podcast we did back in uh, January, I think um, he, you know, his answer was was wonderful. It was it was pure Tony. He just said, "Look, I wish everybody well, but it's just not suitable for me." And that idea of um, of suitability of the suitability of an investment, I think, is is a really important one because uh, we all kind of we all tend to be dragged towards chasing the latest hot thing. And, and, you know, crypto has been a perfect example of this. It was a thing that everybody was talking about. A lot of people kind of got, got sucked into that. Um, and some of them successfully and others not so. Uh, but for Tony, he's never going to get sucked into that because it doesn't, as he said, it's not suitable for him. It doesn't meet the criteria he has for investing. And so I think for all of us, if 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 we can learn to, understand what our own individual investment style is and 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 actually take time to sit and think about what is that because uh, if you don't understand what your investment style is then you can get whipsawed around you can end up investing in things that aren't appropriate for you and, and you don't really have the, the the mental ability or the framework to deal with the kind of volatility they might bring and so so i i, I don't think tony right now will be doing anything different. Mm. Um, I think he'll still be looking to buy companies that he thinks are valuable in their own right, not valuable from a valuation perspective, but real companies that, that do real things and, 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 and do them efficiently and profitably. Um, uh, I, 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 so I don't think this will be anything for Tony other than perhaps uh, a potential opportunity for those kind of companies to be to be sold off, and when the baby gets thrown out with a bathwater, as it generally does when we have these sharp downturns, um, you know, people like Tony will sit there and and they know the companies they want to own, and they're disciplined about the price that they think values them at a level that will allow them to make a profit, and they'll sit patiently and wait. So, you know, I, I, I think that'll be very much Tony's mindset. You know, Steve, Steve Diggle. Um, uh, again, um, another extraordinary human being, um, remarkably knowledgeable, not just uh, about a, a narrow set of subjects, but you know, I've, I've, I've yet to meet anyone um, who's as, as, as well-read and knows as much about so many things as Steve. It's a, it's a constant education being a friend of Steve's, and, mm. and I'm, I'm grateful for that every day. Um, you know, Steve has been investing in, in biotech, so he's seen some remarkably volatile times, I'm sure. But again, you know, Steve, Steve buys companies that he's happy to own, um, and and he 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 will be owning companies that he believes have a long term future. And 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 things like what we're seeing now are opportunities to to either pick up companies that um, you weren't able to because of uh, exorbitant valuations. Or companies that are on sale because people have panicked and rushed out. So, you know, I think I think both of those guys uh, have a deep sense of of what's truly valuable to them, uh, and have a, a well honed way of 
of navigating the kind of the siren call of mm. of something supposedly being cheap in inverted commas just because the price has fallen. So you know, I, I think the lessons from from both gentlemen for me would 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 be what I mentioned before is 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 understand what your investing style is and try as as best you can to stick to that and 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 invest in assets and companies uh, and areas of the market which are appropriate for you which you you understand and which meet your investment goals now if you if you're speculating that's a whole different thing you know if you are looking to speculate then it's a completely different skill set um but i'm i'm talking in this case purely about investing because that's that's ultimately what what tony and steve both are yeah if you guys are enjoying this conversation, if you'd be willing to consider tweeting about it to your network to bring more people into this amazing conversation with Grant Williams. Uh, Grant, uh, would you just remind us how people can listen to that amazing conversation with Tony Deaton on your podcast? What, when that uh, well, the, was? The, the, yeah, the, 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 the initial one was during my time at Real Vision. That was back in, in January 2018. So if people Google um, my name and Tony Deaton's name, D-E-D-E-N, you'll find that conversation on YouTube uh, in its entirety. It's, I say it's two and a half hours long, which sounds remarkably daunting, um, particularly in today's day and age where, where the tendency has been towards making things shorter and snappier rather than longer and more in-depth. But... Uh, I, I promise you, if you're interested in investing, um, it will be two and a half hours well spent, and you can watch it in bite bits and bites, and you can you can you know, listen to it on on a walk or, or or watch it with a nice glass of wine. I've had people tell me they've done both. Yeah, and um, Tony, I promise you, will not disappoint you. One of the questions Travis had asked uh, yesterday was: Central banks say they're committed to raising rates to fight inflation, no matter what into next year. Wall Street saying or hoping that they'll stop and cut soon. What do you think? Uh, yes, I think is the answer to that question. Okay. I think um, I think central banks are absolutely determined to raise rates um, and fight inflation. Um, I also think they will absolutely pivot when they realize the damage that's going to do. The big question, as always, with, with any part of this little puzzle that we call investing is when. You know, that's, that's the unknown. Um, we, you know, we're in a we're in a strange situation now where we've had for twenty years the central banks have been assuring everybody that you know everything's under control and assuring everybody that rates will stay low and, and you know, forward guidance has been an important tool in their in their toolbox to try and manipulate markets to to the outcome they're looking for. But it's all been dovish. It's all been don't worry, we're here for you. Don't worry, we're 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 going to cut rates if we need to, and we'll step in if markets get dislocated. And the markets have become conditioned to believe that. And now we have this this crazy situation where they are desperately trying to convince markets they're serious um, about being hawkish, about raising rates, about getting in front of the inflationary curve after being woefully behind it for so long. And now's the time markets choose not to believe them. So we have a a situation where for the first time in, in over 20 years, probably, central banks are not getting their way. They're not getting the markets bending to their will. They're not, you know, if you look at the break-even inflations uh, five years forwards, you'll see that uh, the market is saying inflation is going to be back to 2.5% and the Fed are going to get 
you know everything they want but at the same time everybody in in the market is saying well they're definitely going to pivot so we we have a a bizarre topsy-turvy um, world where the fed is desperately trying to say no no we're serious about raising rates and the market's just kind of you know punch him in the shoulder going yeah yeah of course you are yeah yeah we get it of course you are of course you are so it remains to be seen the pathway we take from here but right now it looks as though in order to maintain whatever credibility they've got left they have to try and, and break these inflation expectations which means hiking and i suspect they will go 75 basis points at the next meeting maybe they go 100 just to, to ram home the message um because the higher they can get rates before they have to pivot and cut them, the more room it gives them to, to kind of soothe the market. So, you know, going 100 this time and then 50 or 75, if that's what it takes to, to convince people, well, it gives them an awful lot of room to cut rates again. And so, you know, I, I think we're going to see more um, multiple uh, high hikes just so they can quickly get to a level where if they do cut, it's... Um, they're not cutting back to zero. Maybe if they cut, if they can stabilize things, they can get to 4% on, on Fed funds, then they can cut maybe and, and, and bring the floor down to 3%. And it looks good and the markets are sued. That would be a huge win for them. If they could get rates back to three and markets calm, that would be absolutely the best outcome for them. So that's what I suspect will happen. But uh, as for when, I, I, I honestly have no idea. Grant, we're going to take a question from Raymond, who jumped right in. Grant, uh, Raymond, can you hear me? Make sure you unmute your mic. Hello, can you hear me? Hi. Yes. Hi, Raymond. Oh, so What's Kim, your question for Grant? Yes, I do. Kim, thank you. you. Hey, Raymond. <laughs> Hi, buddy. I'm How good, are you? Grant. Kim, I just want to say thank you for allowing me the opportunity to speak to Grant Williams, because I'm a... Uh, a long-time subscriber to his podcast. I'm extremely grateful for the content that he puts out. And I've learned so much for this man that it's an honest uh, honest uh, privilege to be able to have the opportunity to just ask a question. So thank you, Kim, for having me. You're welcome. Uh, Grant, I'm going to try and contain myself and my emotions. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> awesome. but, uh, but the, the question I have is, is uh, circling back to the pivot that you, you had just mentioned, um, this pivot to me is undoubtedly going to happen. And I subscribe precisely to what you have just outlined today. But the pivot to me is not just a pivot of just interest rates, but to me it's a pivot of how, how the world's going to work and what the world's going to look like after they pivot. And I'm just my question is, does that world include central bankers in the future? I mean, confidence has got to be completely uh, removed from, 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 their, from their reputation at that point. Right. So just wanted to know what, what we well, that world looks like. Thank you for having me again. I, I, I think it's a great question. I, I do. Um, and, and I think it, it's it's dangerous to believe that confidence in central banks will go if they if they pivot again, because the, the problem is when they pivot, they're essentially uh, on the one hand, if you take these things seriously and you are concerned about their credibility, then yes, they are reinforcing the fact that they've they've been wrong-sided once again, which has happened so many times over the last you know thirty odd years. Well, ever since '87, really, when Greenspan kind of started this ball rolling down the hill. But if you're only interested in the outcome, 
then I think market practitioners are willing to suspend the importance of credibility if it if it gets them what they want, which is abundant liquidity, low rates, and markets going up again. So, so I think it's possible for the Fed to to absolutely shred their credibility amongst one class of investors, um, and amongst another class uh, who are the ones that that drive the short term flows in markets. They'll just hold their nose and buy anyway with both hands because they've been conditioned to think that once the Fed pivots, we're off to the races again. So, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I think I think to imagine a world without central bankers, I think it's more likely that the first step down that road would be for them to lose their supposed independence. Um, you know, we saw recently a, a, a little vignette in Australia where the, the central bank governor, Philip Lowe, essentially admitted on national TV that they'd kind of got things wrong um, and apologized for it. We've seen Kuroda-san in in Japan also say at a, at a press briefing that the Japanese people were were willing to accept higher prices and the backlash was such that he was forced to apologize. So we're, we're in that phase where central bankers are being kind of held to account and being forced to apologize because of the backlash. So that's not good for them. But the first, um, the first piece of fallout from uh, Philip Lowe's um, recalcitrance on, on, in Australia, was a quote-unquote independent review of the RBA by the government. So you can see what's happening here is that we, we, are, we are getting to a point where um, governments are going to need central banks to do certain things in order to maintain the government's um, position. And uh, I've used this quote often, but Jeff Gundlach said to me in an interview a number of years ago, he said, you know, there's Fear and greed are both powerful, but there's one thing more powerful than both, and that's need. You know, he said, when you need to do something, you don't have a choice. And so if governments need central banks to act in a certain way, then I suspect the first step will be to, to chip away at their independence, e- even though I, you know, I think this, the idea of independence, when push comes to shove, is a myth. Um, making it explicit rather than implicit will be the first step on that road. So I, I don't think we're going to... I don't think we're going to we're going to lose central bankers, not for the foreseeable future, but maybe they get taken in house for a little while, a little arm put around their shoulder, and the government say, "Listen, guys, here's how here's how central banking is going to work going forward." If you guys are enjoying this conversation and you'd be willing to consider tweeting it out so we can get more people uh, exposed to the wisdom that Grant Williams is sharing with us all today. Uh, Just a quick shout out for Grant's uh, really wildly popular newsletter, Things That Make You Go Hmm. If you have not signed up for it, do do it. It's a unique mix of humor, history, and his financial wisdom of over 35 years. And he always has this ability to bring people together that are talking about things way ahead of the curve. So I think you all need to sign up for that. Uh, We do have another question coming in here uh, from Conrad, so I'm going to let him ask his question. Hi, Conrad. Can you hear us? Make sure you unmute your microphone. I'm sorry, are you asking me? Yes, Conrad. Hi, Conrad. Oh, hi. Yes, I can hear you guys. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was me or someone else you were asking. Uh, Great... uh, great space here. 
I've been following Grant's work for a lot of years. Um, it's kind of morphed over the years, many different directions, but uh, that is part of life. You you know, you kind of go different directions based on kind of your beliefs. And I just had a question to, uh, for Grant and kind of like <clears throat> your thoughts on this. The Fed has been, you know, for the last, uh, you know, as long as I can remember now, um, you know, call it 12 years, 13 years since the GFC on this 2% inflation mandate and uh you know even before covid inflation was starting to tick up and the fed has this you know two percent inflation mandate and they've been saying as as they started to kind of see some inflation pressures build up in the economy they were saying a lot of this is kind of transitory so they've been using this term transitory for several years and of course just in the last say six to eight months um you know, it's apparent that it's not transitory or not as transitory as the Fed would like it to be. So, you know, my thought, you know, and I don't know what your thought is on this, but let me just ask you, um, could it could it be possible that the Fed at some point realizes that inflation, uh, while transitory, uh, and I believe it is transitory, I mean, the, the energy inflation we're, we're seeing, um, that's ticked up since the war in Ukraine. So you have, you're fighting two battles. You're fighting a battle on energy, which is primarily just in the last, uh, you know, call it four or five months, uh, accelerated due to the, the war in Ukraine. And then, of course, the supply chain issues bottlenecks around the world uh, from COVID the last two years. So those two things, as they, you know, I hope and we all hope that they kind of, um, you know, at some point kind of go away or, or at least, uh, you know, slow down and get resolved. Um you know, that'll put less pressure on, on inflation. Uh, what's not, you know, transitory is, of course, the labor inflation that's been with us for the last several years. I think that's more sticky than people realize. So is it possible that the Fed, uh, you know, over the next, say, two or three meetings, takes their foot off the gas? Because, again, we're looking at, you know, everything kind of around us has been breaking for the last five months. Um, and, it, and it's accelerating. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. I mean, I was just looking with my partner. At so the, Con Conrad, Conrad, I'm just going to interrupt you. Sure. Just what's the what's the bottom line question for Grant? Well, the well, the question is okay. I'll, I'll ask the question. I don't need to. So the question is, uh, what are your thoughts on the Fed kind of pivoting away from a two percent mandate and going with a more you know reasonable, say three and a half, four percent mandate? for the foreseeable future giving and, and by doing so giving them some breathing room and not having to con continue on with uh, interest rate increases um, that are essentially blowing awesome. up the yield curve left right and center so what are your thoughts on, on raising that inflation mandate and giving them some wiggle room on the uh, on the other side well i think i think they um i think they tried to do it already by by talking about um quote unquote allowing inflation to run hot for a while i think they 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 tried to do it with this idea that they were trying to average two percent over time, um, so so I, I, I think they're open to that. Um, the, the transitory thing is interesting though, because the time to be on team transitory is now. The time is now to say, you know, I think eight percent inflation is transitory, and, and we will probably get a moderation inflation, um, but maybe it goes back down to five. Now, can the Fed claim victory at that point? Possibly. And, and interestingly, comrade, your question. Um, Bill Fackenstein and I this morning actually interviewed Greg Jensen, the co-CIO of um, Bridgewater for the for the end game. And, and we'll release that in, in the next couple of days. And, and Greg's view uh, was was interesting because we, we talked about this exact thing. And 
a year ago we had a conversation with greg and and to go back and listen to that and i'm gonna i'm gonna put that out um, for everybody to listen to because even though it's a year old as a framework it's incredibly helpful because greg just about nailed everything that's happened since then um and greg's view is very much the same as mine and bill's to your point that the chances are inflation where we are now is transitory at, 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 in the eights and it moderates to five and at that point the fed probably do have to give up what they want as two and say you know that for the for the time being of course they can't step away from their mandate because that would signal defeat but say you know for, the, for we think three percent is a reasonable target because hey look we had a decade of sub two inflation so if we run it at three for a while then you know, I think that's all going to be great. So I, I think they absolutely will try and back away from that that two percent. The real question is is um, what happens if inflation does moderate to five? Because at that point, once again, it, it might make sense, depending on the conditions at the time, to step off the team transitory chain once again and say five percent isn't transitory. We are we are going to go back to six. We're going to go back to seven because your point is absolutely correct. The wage price inflation that's now embedded in the system is much tougher to to walk back. Um, and we've seen a lot of big companies give out pay rises that they can't just walk back. So, um, yes, I think the short answer to the question is, yes, I think they will absolutely change that 2% and they'll they'll lift it to maybe three, maybe three and a half. Who knows? But it will be alongside inflation moderating from eight down to maybe five. So it looks like they're they're winning. They're on the right path. It's coming down. It's going to come down further. Um, it just remains to be seen how sticky the inflation is, how sticky the energy inflation is, particularly given the the lack of spending that's been um, invested into into energy in the last decade or so. You know they're woefully undercapitalized. So there is a strong chance that this energy, um, particularly if the Biden policies remain the same, that this energy. Uh, uh, a deficit is a bigger problem for longer than we first think, whether whether Russia is, is brought back online, which is unlikely in the short term, or not. So I, I hope that answers the question. Just a friendly reminder, if you guys are enjoying this content, if you'd be willing to consider sending out a tweet that Grant is in the house ready to answer investors and traders questions and also if you haven't signed up or listened to grant's podcast you really should because his podcast interviews have been downloaded over a million times putting grant's podcast basically at the top of 0.1 percent of podcasts that are offered in the fast marketplace which is pretty impressive uh we did have one question from sean yesterday grant where he was asking a big general question about the best lessons you've learned from your investing career it's a big wide open question want to take yeah. that on um sure I, i'll i'll try and give you some big wide open answers i think okay. um i think really I, over time the 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 experience that the, the the hard lessons have been the ones that have been most useful um in the long run you know the, the losses i've taken the the things I've gotten wrong, the calls that I've gotten wrong. Um, I think you learn more from from those than you ever do about being right because I think we all tend to expect certain things to happen. And if they do, we assume they happen because of the reasons we thought. Um, and, and oftentimes that isn't the case. So I think you, you, you can sometimes um, put forward an investment case why asset 
A is going to go to price B, and it does, but it doesn't go there for the reasons that you thought, and, and you still think you're a genius. Whereas when things go wrong, you tend to, I think, understand more quickly because you have to why they've gone wrong. You know, I remember talking to Carl Bass and um, interviewing Carl a number of years ago, and he said to me, he said that the, the single worst thing that happened to him in his career was the first stock he shorted went to zero. Um, and he said, you know, because of that, I just thought I was the greatest short seller in the world. And he said, you know, I lost way more money on the next three shorts than I made on the first one because I just didn't believe that all shorts didn't go to zero. And so I think, um, I think that understanding the reasons why things happen uh, and particularly analyzing your, your losses to, 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 to figure out what you get wrong is incredibly important. Um, you know, Kim, you and I have spoken about avoiding taking big losses and it, it's such a, it's such a stock recommendation for people. But, but for me, it's, it's arguably the most important thing for me is to, is to never take a, a, a big loss that can put you out of the game. Um, that's something I've, I've fortunately avoided my entire career. And, and I, I'll be the first to say it's, it's probably, cost me money in in times of, of great euphoria because i just refused to get sucked into uh the kind of some of the madness we've seen in the dot-com bubble and the crypto space and all these things i've 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 not avoided them completely but I, I i never get carried away in them so i will i will definitely have left money on the table but the caution has has helped me avoid taking you know big drawdowns in 2000 in 2008 um in 2020, even um, I was I was cautious and and aware of the bubble conditions and just didn't want to play in those last final stages and uh, you know so, so so that those two lessons for me are understanding why you were wrong uh, and also why you were right and mm -hmm. also avoiding that big drawdown those for me are, the, are the, the two biggest lessons that I've taken away from my career I think. So Graham, because I know uh, you have. Uh other appointments today. I want to just check in. We do have another requested question. Are you okay sure. to stay a little longer? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Terrific. Awesome. All right. And Travis, I'm going to add you now to speaker. What's your question for Grant? Travis, welcome to the conversation. Hi. Yeah. I'd just like to say, first of all, thank you for everything you've done because, um, I mean, honestly, I have a degree in economics. I've taken all the tests. I have all the letters. And I think I've learned more from your um, interviews and, and readings than I have of all the hours I've spent uh, in classes. So just wanted to say thank you for that. Well, that's, that's incredibly kind. Thank you, Travis. I'm, uh, that's very touching. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, so I've kind of got two questions. One I know is near and dear to your heart, which is gold. Um, <laughs> we have, you know, inflation. We've got let's call it central bank uncertainty. We have war and yet it kind of just goes sideways. Um, so that's my first question is your thoughts just on gold. And then my second question is, is there something that you're watching or looking at that's kind of on the back pages that nobody else is kind of looking at that you think uh, is very important, maybe that other people should be looking at or, or generally we should be looking at? Uh, let, let me take the gold question first. Um, uh, yeah, look, I, th I think um, my views on gold are very well known, and, and I, I've, I've tried to be 
as clear as I can in terms of how I think about it, which which I think is is quite important because for me, um, it, it's it's not ever been a, a, a price issue. And so when people talk about um, you know a where's where's the price going to go or b why hasn't the price moved? Um, you know, there's, there's never really answers to those questions, unfortunately. And I, you know, I've thought about them for a long time, but but I, I've realised there really isn't an answer to give people. You know, for me, I I view gold as as protection, um, as as a way to protect my purchasing power for a part of my portfolio. And you know, in, in that um, conversation we referenced earlier with Tony Deed, and you know, Tony talked a bit in terms of a liquidity reserve, which again I think is just a wonderful way to think about it is, is to is to have gold there as as a means of, by which to to acquire things when when they become um, less highly priced in terms of gold. You know, for for an example, if you have a safety deposit box full of gold, and you know, right now you can you can buy a, a, a secondhand um, Kia with it. There may come a time when that same uh, that same Safety, bo- safety deposit box full of gold will buy you a brand new Mercedes. And at that point, it's not the price of the gold. It's would you rather still own the gold or would you rather own the Mercedes? You can just exchange the gold for it. So I, I try and think of gold in, in those terms, in terms of what can I exchange it for rather than the price. Now, having said that, um, I, I obviously understand why people focus on the, on the price so much because there's an awful lot of information in the gold price. And, and, and there are countless theories about suppression of the price and it certainly has behaved in a counterintuitive way for many years but going back to conrad's question about the federal reserve and credibility the one thing that i i would expect to happen if the fed pivot again and and if their credibility is questioned by that group of investors that i singled out earlier i the kind of value old school investors as opposed to the people that will will hold their nose and buy it if the Fed pivot again, at that point, I do fully expect gold to have a significant run. I would think that pivot will be enough for people who who kind of have some sense of value, however they individually define it, to realize that, okay, if they're pivoting now, then fiat currency is, is finally going to be debased at, at a rapidly increasing rate. At that point, I would imagine people will... will want to own more gold or more people want to own gold or both and and that dynamic in a in a in a supply constrained market um is is going to have an effect on the price for sure but but to me it doesn't matter if gold goes to two and a half thousand or three thousand because i'm not looking to trade it i'm I'm just looking to own it and and hold some of my savings in it but for people who want to speculate on the price of gold i think that's the point where um, you'll get a, a chance to go long gold in, 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 as, as a means of making um, you know a profit. Your, your second question, I, I think um, it's it's a really good question, and an important one for people to think about. Whether whether there's anything that no one else is thinking about, I, I doubt that. But I think um, there are there's an awful lot of information in places like um, you know, the, the, for example, the Australian housing market is something I've written about numerous times um and i wrote a piece last month that, that kind of wrapped the housing markets of australia new zealand and canada all together because the you know the, the bubbles in the property market down there dwarf that which we saw in the united states back in 2007 um and i think understanding 
what's going on in somewhere like Australian housing, even though it's it's a little arcane and it's certainly not something you're going to read too much about in in kind of US or UK or even European press, is to see how quickly rising interest rates affect an over-indebted uh, mortgage-based society. Now, it's, it's different in the US. I don't think the US is anywhere near the dire straits that, that Australia's in. But watching um, a country whose property market is absolutely integral to its entire financial stability go through the exercise of trying to reprice housing in a world where the average mortgage payment looks like it's set to double is a great tell for what happens in Canada and what happens in New Zealand when, when the rubber hits the road. And all three of those countries' housing markets are starting to deteriorate pretty rapidly. Now, that gives you a sense of what might happen in the UK, which is not in such dire straits, but has problems of its own. And by looking at countries like that, you can you can get a sense of what might happen in the UK as, as rates start to tighten and mortgage payments increase. And then you, you apply the same logic to... Um, to Japan and the JGB market. And again, I come back to Australia. We had, we had uh, the RBA, the Royal Bank of Australia, um, exercising yield curve control after the pandemic started. You know, they pegged the three-year yield on the, on the government bond to 0.1%, 10 basis points. Um, and then in October of 2021, <coughs> excuse me, they were, they were forced to capitulate on that. Now, they, the lesson there is, is twofold is the, the fact that they capitulated just by walking away. It was never announced they were capitulating. Um, and in a recent conversation I had with James Aitken on, on the Endgame podcast, um, we talked about this, and, and James's point was absolutely right. He said, look, of course, central banks can't telegraph that they're going to walk away from uh, a yield curve peg because as soon as they telegraph it, that's what we're going to do. The whole market will inundate them with offers at that level. So we, we saw a central bank being chased out of a peg in Australia, and we saw the ramifications of that. The, the, the yield on the three-year went from 10 basis points to 75 basis points in a matter of days, which is, which is a huge shock. So I think seeing things like that happen in Australia and now looking at Japan, where they're pegging the yield curve at the 10-year point to 25 basis points, we're already starting to see um, stress on that. We're starting to see the Bank of Japan having to buy many more bonds than they've had, than they've had to do. We're starting to see the futures uh, of JGBs trade as though the Bank of Japan is going to be forced to capitulate. And so I think um, looking at things like Australia, which some people might think, well, who cares about what Australia is doing to the three-year year? It doesn't really make any difference. It's not a big enough bond market. It's not a big enough country to, to matter to anyone. And, and in and of itself, that's probably right. But if you can take those lessons you can learn from observing things like the Bank of Real Bank of Australia and their exercise, you can look at a much bigger market like Japan and understand, well, okay, the yen is now going through 135, looking for all the world like it's on its way to 150. Um, we can see the pressure on the JGB curve. If they stick to this um, out of sheer bloody-mindedness or, or desperation, then we can see that the yen is probably going to head towards 150 and then you bring in something like jim o'neill the ex-goldman um, economist and the guy who coined the term BRICS, writing last week about how if the yen goes to 150 we'll have a new asian crisis all over again so you start to be able to take uh, uh, something as seemingly trivial as as the rba peg at the three-year point on their curve 
and you can see how the dominoes might fall and handicap the chance of there being a new Asian crisis. And if there's a new Asian crisis, well, you have a template for what that looks like from 1997, and you can start to, to position yourself to, to make money out of that. So there are, I think there are, it's very rare to find something that nobody's talking about, but finding things that people in local markets are talking about that might seem irrelevant in bigger markets like the US and Europe Sometimes that is a, a really good place to start to, to begin to formulate investment ideas that, that give you time to, to structure them properly before the rest of the world starts paying attention. So I, I hope that in some way makes some sense and, and answers your question in, in, in some part, at least. God, it means so much sense, Grant. Uh, I'm going to take Claire's question, if that's okay with you. Of course. Great. Hi, Claire. Be sure to unmute yourself. What's your question for Grant? Hi, Claire. What's your question? Yeah, hi. Hi, Claire. Uh, I'm a long-time subscriber, so thank you very much for all of your content. Well, thank um, you. My question is around the euro dollar and what your thoughts are of this market uh, with respect to the value of the dollar. So... On one side, we're seeing inflation in the U.S., and at the same time, we're seeing commodity prices increase, and commodity prices are mostly in dollars, which is creating a bit of a crunch abroad. And so I would love to get your thoughts around how you see that dynamic, or even at a broader scale, how you see the euro dollar play in the global macroeconomic landscape. And I have a second optional question, if I may. <laughs> Which sure. is a much bigger, broader question, which is what is something you used to strongly believe that you've recently changed your mind on? Oh, OK, right. OK, well, let me let me let me let me half answer the euro dollar question for you first, um, because I would I would say that anybody wants to understand the euro dollar um, markets, then they should follow Jeff Snyder. Jeff Snyder is is absolutely preeminent on this and you can you can find jeff um j-e-f-f-s-n-i-d-e-r you can find jeff on twitter and he's doing a phenomenal series of podcasts talking about this stuff with another good friend of mine uh emil kalinowski so i i would absolutely point you to those guys i i would say um in terms of the, the first part of that question because i think if we if we get into the weeds of the euro dollar system we, we could be here for hours but i think this this um linkage between the um between the dollar and commodities has been a fascinating one to watch and it, and it is something that over time uh, people have been able to to be long the dollar and short commodities and vice versa and, it, and it's always been expected that um when the dollar got strong commodities will be weak and and vice versa and i think what we've seen in the last um in the last number of uh of weeks and months is how that can break and and it's funny that feeds into i think your second question i think there are a lot of people out there right now who used to believe that if the dollar went up commodity prices will go down and, and they have probably been disavowed of that belief right now um and it's the same with gold you know if you, if you look at what the dollar's done and you look at what gold's done gold has held in remarkably strongly given the strength in the dollar and i think a lot of people who who foresaw strength in the dollar um saw weakness in gold and it, it just hasn't materialized you know if you look across across the last um, months and even the last couple of years so um you know the, the the dollar dislocation in terms of the linkages to things that were that were thought to be 
um, absolute written in stone, i.e. dollar up, commodities down. The fact that those dislocations have occurred, I think should tell people that we are now in a slightly different world. And what that means is if the dollar does turn around, um, as we expect, you you would ordinarily think, well, we're going to get another huge leg up in commodities. That may not be the case because, you know, some of the reasons for commodities being where they are um, are not related to the dollar. They are related to, su- to supply that, that, that may find a way to come back online, whether the Saudis do in, end up pumping more oil, although um, the, the kind of the, the, the fly on the wall snippet we got from Macron the other day suggests that might be problematic, but, but we won't know for a little while. What I will say is if, if the dollar does weaken, then I think it's, I, I wouldn't be comfortable saying that commodities will weaken. I think if the dollar weakens, there is a shortage of them and that, that weakening dollar price will send commodity prices higher. I don't think it will maybe be as pronounced as it might have been because, as I said, the linkage is damaged and we've already kind of front-loaded a lot of that rise. But I don't think that this this dollar up, commodities up, I think if you're relying on that to happen in reverse, i.e. this whole um, linkage is reversed and when the dollar goes down, commodities will go down as well. I think that will be proven to be wrong. Um, let, let me come to the second part. Things that I once believed strongly uh, that I now believe to not be true anymore that's a fantastic question and i'm not sure how to answer it off the top of my head but one thing that i've i've thought a lot about um recently uh is the the aspect of society that i think um has been really important to people and is going to change and i and i think a lot of people are going to realize it's 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 not true is this this desire to um to showcase wealth and to showcase how successful you are and to showcase how well you're doing this kind of, this kind of bling culture. And I started thinking about this um, after a conversation I had with Steve Diggler, we've talked about already uh, a number of years ago. And he said to me in an interview, he said, um, he said, you know, it's never a good time to be poor, but now is a very bad time to be rich. And I think that challenge at the time, um, general consensus thinking. I mean, everybody wanted to be rich. Everybody's been chasing crypto to get rich. Everybody's been buying the dip to get rich. And and when they've gotten rich, it's all about when you're going to buy a Lambo and, um, you know, uh, these these glossy Instagram posts and everything else that's associated with, with wealth. And I think um, everyone has believed that having wealth and showing it off is a good thing. And I fear that we are heading into a time where having wealth and showing it off is going to be a very, very bad thing. Um, I think the, 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 the income inequality is, has reached a point where it, it's going to break things. I think um, if you, you know, growing up in England, as I did, uh, the, the, the real wealth in England has never, ever been on view. You know, the, the real old money in England, which goes back centuries, um, you would walk past the people who are really wealthy, and you you would you would you know you'd, you'd almost think about giving them a couple of uh, pounds to buy a cup of tea, um, <laughs> and and that's been that's been the way of things in the UK, and it, and it hasn't necessarily been the way of things in the US, and it hasn't been the way of things in social media culture, but I think 
that's something that I believe is has changed. And I don't think people are necessarily in tune with that yet. But I think that change is going to potentially cause an awful lot of problems. And, and, and it does concern me deeply. I, I know I kind of half answered the euro dollar, but I, I honestly think that if you if you dig into Jeff's work, you will find much better answers to a really detailed arcane subject than I could give you in a few minutes here. So I hope I hope that's okay that I kind of one and a half answered your questions. Grant, you're okay for one more? Yeah, of course. Awesome. I'm so glad. Uh, Doom Burke, I am excited to have oh, you no, here. I don't talk to chickens. I don't talk to chickens. You don't talk to chickens? I heard about <laughs> Doom Burke thanks to Jawad Neon's uh, Slack channel. So I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you. Mr. Chicken. Thank you, Kim. Grant, I just cut the back half of this, so if this is a repeat question, uh, accept my apologies. What are the odds that the Fed buys JGBs? I have this theory that um, we're going to see international QE as a way of sort of um, a bit of a shell game where, you know, the Fed buys JGBs, helps stabilize the yen, and then Japanese turn around and become the, uh, the bidder of U.S. treasuries again. Am I crazy, or is this something that is on your radar? I, If you'd asked me what's the chance that the, the BOJ buys treasuries i would have said a much higher chance um i think it's such a it's such a it's such a strong possibility that there is some kind of pooling of you know i scratch my back and well, i scratch your back and you scratch mine but the the jgb market for there's, there's two things that would make me pause for that one is the is the structure of the jgb market and, and the, the sheer lack of a free float for one of a better term and the second is I don't think the BOJ would want control of the JGB market anywhere but in their own pocket. Now, having said that, um, I think the BOJ are going to find themselves in very, very desperate straits in the not-too-distant future. And so I, there's a very strong chance they will find some kind of way to to have the Fed contribute potentially. Um I don't think it would be an outright purchase of JGBs because I just don't think the, the Bank of Japan would want that kind of control to be with another central bank. But is it some kind of central bank special special purpose vehicle? I, I, I don't know. But I could certainly see that being one of the things they, they talk about doing when, when push comes to shove. The other problem with that um, is right now we've seen actually surprising amount of coordination between central banks in terms of rate hikes. Um, but I suspect that all inflations aren't created equal. You know, Japan has just gotten two and a half percent inflation. And even then, you know, it's, it's half a percent above their target and it's starting already to cause problems. Now, if Japan starts to get 3% inflation, 4% inflation, obviously it's, it's half that we're seeing in the U.S., but it's a much bigger problem for the Japanese. Um, in Australia, they're nowhere near the kind of inflation the US is seeing, but they're being forced to tighten, um, again, as we mentioned earlier on, which is causing uh, all sorts of chaos in the systemically important housing market. So I, what, I, what I fear is a point in the not-too-distant future where one man's inflation isn't another man's inflation and everybody is forced for political reasons, to fight their own inflation. And if the U.S. is trying to combat 8% inflation, I don't know how predisposed they're going to be to helping Japan ward off 3% inflation. Um, it, it, it's possible, uh, and I haven't 
until you brought it up, I haven't really spent an awful lot of time thinking about it. Um, it, it I'm, I'm more inclined to believe the Fed will buy stocks next time around. I don't think that would be too much of a stretch for them. Um, and all these kind of programs that they come up with um, are incremental in nature. You know, first, there, there are all sorts of things that, well, we can do this because we can't do that. And in the next crisis, they find a way to do that. And then it's something else that's the problem. So I, I, would, I would be far happier assuming the Fed buys stocks next time around than JGBs. But there's absolutely no chance I'd take it off the table. I would just say, reading your last uh, Things That Make You Go Home piece, uh, which was fantastic, um, you're, you're mentioning that um, they wouldn't want the, you know, the control over their mar bond market to be in any other hands. It doesn't feel like it's in their hands today. So that was my the reason well, why I was uh, asking. Yeah, you're, you're right in terms of the volatility. Um, absolutely not. But in terms of who's owning them, I mean, they own the vast majority of JGBs and they're on course to own all of them, at which point, you know, we get to this hypothetical question for now is do they just, um, you know, shake hands with the, the MOF, the Ministry of Finance, and nothing done, write the whole thing off. And, and that's something, you know, Fleck and I pursued in the end game to figure out what actually happens in a world where, where you know, trillions of yen, quadrillions of yen of debt just get just goes away. Does the yen get stronger because the country's debt to GDP is actually is much more manageable, or does the yen crater because people look at the kind of uh, the, the, the sleight of hand and realise that it's not real currency anymore? And we don't know the answer to any of these things. The problem is, I suspect at some point we're going to find out the answers to all of them, and and not all the answers are going to be conducive to smooth markets. Doomberg, did you have a follow-up or your, 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 your path? Well, I mean, I, I, I could listen to Grant all day, but I'll, I'll cede the floor to others who have um, less opportunity to speak with Grant than perhaps uh, we do. <laughs> thanks, thanks for that question. Grant, we are going to start to wrap up. Uh, I don't see other requests in the room. If you guys have them, put that through now. Um, what is a question that I... <laughs> because we just did a podcast, which we will release, guys, probably next week. I did 30 minutes with Grant uh, on my podcast before bringing us over here to Twitter space. But I'm just curious, what question did I not ask you and have the participants not asked you that we should have asked you? Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have the first idea how to answer that question. What <laughs> should you have asked me? Yeah. Um, I don't know. It would, it would it would probably be a, a question about Fulham, my soccer team, but um, I don't think anybody <laughs> but me and the other four fans would ever want to talk about that. What what what's what's important about that to you, and why is that the why is there wisdom there? Do you know what? I, I, I'll I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why because my no. my father, God bless him, um, took me to my first soccer match when I was I think five years old. So this is my fiftieth year of of going to support this football team and my dad and i would go to football um every week they were at home I, I you know i learned to drive my dad taught me to drive driving up to these soccer matches so these these were these were a big deal to us and, and we we spent an awful lot of time bonding over that and I've, i i loved every minute of it and you know we haven't been to a game because of covid since december 2019 together but um that's all that's all background the the, the team in question fulham um if anyone out there knows then they know but of those 50 years, I would say I've probably had four good ones, um, <laughs> maybe eight mediocre ones, and the rest have all been just awful. Um, and, they've, and they've sucked for many, many years. But I've learned, I've learned to lose 
being a fan of Fulham. I've learned that you know winning isn't the only important thing. It's it is about the experience and about the enjoyment and about the kind of deeper connection that you have to um, something, whether it be a football team or, or something else. But having that connection that abides through ups and downs and um, wins and losses, and you know, I can I can end a season where they've been relegated to a lower division and be in abject misery. And when the season starts three months later, I can't wait to go back and, and watch them again. So I think, I think, I think there are, there are an awful lot of lessons in there, Kim. And I, and I think if you stuck me on a couch, you'd be able to tease them out of me much more than I can, but, um, well, but it's well, been a hearing, constant for 50 years. What I'm hearing is you're, you sound like you're channeling Ted Lasso right now. <laughs> yes, you know what? I, I, I think everybody will learn a lot more from Ted Lasso than ever learned from me. That is just uh, such a wonderful, wonderful TV show. I, I, for anyone that hasn't seen it, you're in for a real treat. And everyone that has, like me, I'm sure, is counting the days till till they release season three. But, but Grant, I, I suspect you are a lot like Ted Lasso's character because of your optimism uh, of, around just life in general, regardless of what's happening in the markets you you have well, you this know, way Kim Ed, I, I i listen i would love i would love for that to be the case but i have a real issue with uh, i don't know i think it might be the daily telegraph or some, some online newspaper in the uk uh i found myself <laughs> lulled into doing somebody sent me a you know which character in ted lasso are you and so i uh-huh. did this and to my horror my absolute horror i turned out to be nate and I, I cannot tell you how upset I was that day about coming out as that. I, it really, really upset me an enormous amount. So I, uh, I'm going I'm uh, to defer to you as the expert and I, ignore the I, Daily Telegraph. I think you just woke up on the wrong side of the bed that day when you took that assessment. All right, we have a question. We have a question on Twitter. Somebody was in queue to ask the last question regarding Fulham. Who is your favorite player? My favorite player? Oh, wow. Um, you know, there was a player back in the God, within the seventies. I mean, obviously, I'm 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 leaving George Best and Rodney Marsh out of this, who were two of the greatest players to ever play football, and they both played for Fulham at one time. So I'm going to leave those actually the obvious ones. But when I was a kid, there was a guy, a Scottish guy called Peter Marinello, who played number seven, and he always wore his shorts on backwards, so the number seven was on the back of his leg, <laughs> not the front. And for some reason, I just I, he was a, he was a he was a wonderful player, um, and I just I, I just loved going to watch him play. So he he would be the answer to that question. Perfect, perfect. I think we're going to end it there, Grant. What an absolute generous amount of time he gave all of us. Thank you for coming on my podcast, coming to this Twitter space. It was just uh, really just so incredibly eye opening to this. Well, it really to you. it really was it really was my pleasure. That's not just a figure of speech. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and my, and my thanks to everybody out there giving up some of their day to listen to me i mean it's um it's remarkably kind of everybody and um and kind of you to to invite me Kim. so thank you so much for for extending the invitation you are so welcome i'm looking forward to talking to you and doing it again one day hopefully not too far anytime. in the future anytime. okay all right aloha to everybody and we hope that you'll sign up for grant's newsletter things that make you go hmm which is just again the most 
one of the most popular newsletters out there, especially in the finance world. Uh, I'm so excited to have had this opportunity to talk with you and hear such great questions. Thanks for everybody participating. And hopefully we'll see everybody uh, on the next uh, Twitter space. Have a great day. And thank you, Grant, again. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Kim. Bye. This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. You can download Kim's free ebook, Discipline and Finding Your Edge, at TraderDiscipline.com. And learn more about working with Kim and her team at TheWallStreetCoach.com. And if you're feeling generous, please leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.